This is Kate Turkington on Travels with Kate. 101.9 High FM. Good afternoon to you. Very good afternoon to you. I'm Kate Turkington. I'm going to be taking you to all kinds of places. We're going to be talking about tea. Can you believe tea? Extremely intricate process. And in South Africa, we have one of the top tea experts in the world, but we'll be talking to her a little bit later on. But first of all, today, I want to tell you about, I'm going to give you three magical names, Byzantium, Constantinople, and the name that we know the city by today, Istanbul. But these three magic names really symbolize the magnificent history of Istanbul. I've been to Istanbul several times, and I can tell you there are few cities in the world that are more special and more exciting to explore. Just think about this. Istanbul has been ruled by 120 kaisers and emperors. 120 kaisers and emperors have ruled Istanbul throughout its long history, and it's hosted those three great civilizations I mentioned at the beginning, Byzantium, Constantinople, and Istanbul. So, a, a, a city with a rich history, culture, just wonderful, wonderful things to do. Well, Hagia Sophia, I suppose, is the best known, uh, um, landmark in Istanbul. It's been a mosque, it's been a Christian church, it's one of the great, it, it's, in, in appearance, it's not unlike the great dome in Jerusalem. If you've been to Istanbul, you will know, uh, you will know what I, I mean. A magnificent sixth century, world famous, Byzantine, built in Byzantine times, Aya Sophia. Once upon a time, it was the world's biggest enclosed space. I don't know what the world's biggest enclosed space is. I haven't got my laptop in front of me, but if you're sitting there, go to chat GPT, find out what is the world's biggest enclosed space. I imagine it's the Vatican in Rome, but I don't know. I'll find out for you and, and let you know later or uh, next week. So, for centuries, this this cathedral, mosque, whatever it's been in the course of its history, it's seen empires come and go. It's now, today, it's actually a museum. And you've got to think soaring interiors, stained glass windows, handcrafted tiles, gilded domes, gorgeous gold mosaics. The first time I was there, was quite extraordinary. There was a whirling dervish. I wonder if you know what a whirling dervish is. A whirling dervish is actually a member of an Islamic Sufi sect. But what they do is they just whirl. They're dressed in long white robes and they stand in a sacred place and they just whirl. They spin like a top. They stretch their arms out and they just whirl on the spot. The most remarkable thing to see. I stood there, I must have watched a whirling dervish whirl for about 20 minutes, and he certainly showed no signs of stopping 
whirling. I don't know. I think I'm just thinking now. Maybe it's akin, in a way, to the Sam Bushman trance dance. You know, when the Sam Bushman do their trance dances, they do go into a trance. They go into a heightened spiritual state where they feel they're in connection with another world, with the higher world, with God, call it whom you. Uh, some kind of power. So I, that's what the whirling dervishes are doing when they whirl. But another wonderful experience in Istanbul, you've got to do, you've got to go to a hammam. Um, you go there, you go to one of the oldest in um, Istanbul. It's called the what is it called now? The Kimbalitas. I'm, I'm sorry if my pronunciation is wrong, if you know Turkish. The Kimbalitas or Timbalitas Hamami. And the locals and the visitors have been coming here to be cleansed and relaxed for over 400 years. And it was built in 1584. And don't think it's like a spa. Don't think you're going to be massaged and patted and stroked and, and soothed. Oh no. You, you take all your clothes off. Um, if you're a lady, you can keep your books on if you want, but you're encouraged to take everything off. And you lie on a big marble slab, and then a, a, a rather large lady who is wearing nothing but a pair of briefs will come and scrub you from top to toe. They put you between their knees. It's rather like your mum when you were little, putting, putting you between her knees to give you a really good wash-down, scrub-down. Down. They put you between their knees, they scrub you down, and then they lie you out flat on these marble uh, sort of shelves, I suppose. And there you are, looking at a, a vaulted, star-studded roof that's been there for over 400 years. And remember, Istanbul straddles two continents. It's where Asia and Europe come to meet Dividing them, the river Bosphorus. And one of the things you must do is to go on a Bosphorus cruise. You can do a morning one where you sail between Asia and Europe and watch all the fishing boats and very, very busy river. Watch all that's going on. Or you can do an evening cruise on the Bosphorus and have a lovely dinner. And very often there's a show of some kind. But I'll tell you more about Istanbul because one could talk about Istanbul for hours in just a moment. This is Kate Turkington on Travels with Kate. Welcome back. I'm Kate Turkington and we're in Istanbul, one of the most exciting cities in the whole wide world. And not only does it have the wonderful culture and history. I mean, you can go to the Topkapi Palace, you can go up to the medieval 66-metre-high Galata Tower, where you get a whole 360-degree view of the city. But also, Istanbul is renowned for its food, 
gorgeous, gorgeous food of all kind. So you must go when you go to a fish market. Maybe many of you will have already been. So there are wonderful seafood markets. There's one called Keti Koi. That's on the Asian side of the Bosphorus. And that's fresh, affordable seafood and also lovely meze. Uh, dishes. And then on the European side in Istanbul itself, in the Kumkapi neighborhood, uh, there's also wonderful fish markets and fish restaurants. And what should you try if you're a tourist? Well, turkey, kebabs, obviously. Grilled meat skewers served with rice, vegetables, bread. You can have shish kebab, you can have donut kebab, all kinds of uh, kebab. And a very, very famous one is called Iskender kebab. And that's a very, very famous Turkish uh, dish. comes from the town of Bursa. And that's thinly sliced lamb or beef served over a bed of pita bread. Oh, I'm drooling as I'm talking about this. And uh, tomato sauce and yogurt. And of course, meze. You know, meze is a selection. It's a bit like the Spanish tapas. It's a selection of little plates, uh, all meant to be shared. They bring you about eight or ten little plates, all, all kinds of dishes, such as stuffed grape leaves and hummus and uh, cheese, oh, all kinds of... It's lunchtime, so I wouldn't mind some meze for lunch at the... Moment. The Turkish breakfasts are wonderful. Bread, cheese, olives, tomatoes, cucumbers, jams, honey, eggs. Incredibly um, healthy diet too. What they call a Mediterranean diet, even though it's the Bosphorus. And of course, if any of you got a sweet tooth, baklava, baklava, <laughs> that layers of pastry with chopped nuts and syrup or honey, and it's very, very good if it's served with Turkish coffee. Turkish coffee is so thick, they serve it in a little tiny cup, and you can almost stand your spoon up in it. It is so, so, so thick. And you see, I play um, backgammon. I used to play with my kids, now I play with some of my grandchildren when I, when I get a chance, love backgammon. And of course, everywhere in Istanbul, Everybody is playing backgammon at a rate of knots. It's not like a chess game where people are thinking the move is clack, 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 as the pieces are moved and uh, borne off, as the expression is. If you play backgammon, you'll uh, know what I mean. Now, a very, very good tip for you. If you're going to Istanbul, you must buy the Istanbul Tourist Pass. It's really the same if you go to any city, if you go to um, almost anywhere, if you go to, to London, buy a tourist pass because you'll save lots and lots of money and it gets you into all the attractions uh, at 
far less um far less surprised and also very often you don't have to stand in the long queues if you've got a tourist pass uh, you can get into things one of my daughters and her family went to Barcelona last year and they got a tourist pass for them and their kids and they said they think the Barcelona tourist people probably made a loss because in three days they did about a hundred different things they got full full value out of their tourist uh, pass. So your Istanbul tourist pass, it covers almost everything from airport transport to guided tours to museums to palaces, entertainments. You can actually go and see the traditional uh, whirling dervishes, belly dancing, authentic Turkish uh, dinner. Apparently there are up to 75 attractions that you can go to and it actually works out at about 75% off the normal attractions if you had to go, same in Paris if you had to go and queue up for the Louvre it's going to cost you a lot more than if you had your tourist pass which covers almost uh, everything so there you go Istanbul, wonderful, wonderful city uh, to visit. I've been several times. I'd go back in a heartbeat. There are very few places I wouldn't go uh, uh, back to exactly. And of course, one last thing about Istanbul, the shopping. The shopping. If you want a glitzy mall or you want an ancient bazaar, you're going to find something for everyone. Designer handbags or false or knockoff designer handbags, handcrafted carpets, belly dancing outfit. I once bought a belly dancing outfit. I think it's stuffed at the back of one of my cupboards <laughs> anywhere. Uh, and then after the Grand Bazaar, which sells everything you can possibly think of, you can go after the spice market for teas, herbs, spices, dried fruit. And of course, one thing I haven't mentioned, you get in Turkey and you get in Istanbul, the Turkish delight. Turkish delight, absolutely lovely. Turkish delight you buy out of Turkey isn't the same as the Turkish delight that you find uh, in Turkey. And I see that in spite of the dreadful earthquakes they've had, the top travel writers and guidebooks are tipping Istanbul as one of the world's must-go-to cities. So, Istanbul. This is Kate Turkington on Travels with Kate. Good afternoon again, 101.9 High FM. I'm Kate Turkington. Now, I'm talking to somebody, fascinating person, and this is how she describes herself. So I'm going to read that to you before we actually talk to her. She says, my name is Tony Glass, and I'm a fiercely determined, delicious and unstoppable South African entrepreneur who has a real hunger for growth and simply loves to give back. I'm an art director, a brand strategist by trade, who went on a personal mission to study tea, to study tea globally in order to learn from the best and share this incredible knowledge and experience and the beverage, tea itself, with my continent. So, Tony Glass and tea... Now, 
Tony. Welcome. How on earth did it all begin? Thank you, Kate. Lovely to be here having our little cuppa on, online. Um, absolutely. I mean, listen, this started 15 years ago, believe it or not. And um, my mother was a tea drinker and my grandmother's actually a coffee drinker. And it's fascinating. She loves your program, by the way. I'm just going to add that in there. And she's a coffee drinker and my mother always sat having a cup of tea with her friends. And I thought it was just completely fascinating how nothing in her generation, I'm talking about my mother's generation now, happened without the pot of tea whether it was bridge or book club or whatever it was they waited for this conduit which was this lovely pot of tea and my generation were always out drinking cappuccinos and I found it rather fascinating so I started to like dig a little bit deeper and work out why there was such a connection in tea and um, I'd been as you just read a brand strategist and an art director and I was always passionate about doing something a little bit different and differently and positioning things differently. And I thought, you know, tea is fabulous, but it's never really been that exciting or that sexy. It's actually a little bit of, you know, sort of that old auntie's drink, mm-hmm. if I could put it like that. Mm-hmm. And, um, and you know, I used to watch my mom and I, it just fascinated me. And I thought I need to learn about this beverage and I want to actually come and reposition tea as something a little bit different. And that's how I got started 15 years ago and then went on a journey to study tea and hopefully share that with my continent so that's where I started Kate and where did you where did you where did you start then where did you decide to go to India to Sri Lanka where Right. So I went all over the place, exactly what you've covered, you know, obviously reading up on a lot of the teas, learning from people. There were actually a lot of conferences, believe it or not, in in the U.S. So even though there was a lot coming out of the East and you would certainly go to plantations and visit a lot of those plantations, which I certainly did. Traveled, spent a lot of time even in Indonesia, bringing in interesting botanicals and looking for like the biodiversity that was quite, quite unique to some of those regions and pulling all those botanicals in. And then obviously in our continent, you know, looking at the likes of Kenya and Tanzania um, and even looking at something like Mauritius, you know, just trying to understand exactly what this tea plant was about. And I wrote exams in tea, so I had to literally go abroad and write exams. I mean, there were many places I arrived in writing exams, not actually seeing all the places because I was literally sitting there studying, writing how and earth, How on earth do you yeah. write an exam in tea? Well, you know, it's a fascinating thing. I mean, I, I thought for myself as well, like, this is a crazy thing, and why do people do this, and how do they do it? But, you know, when you get to places like the U.S. and the U.K., there are formalized there's, formalized groups and, and tests that you can actually do to study tea and be tested on it. And and it's about actually understanding the agriculture. There's a processing, it's farming. So I don't farm the teas, but I know exactly what I need to blend the teas. And, again, even in blending, besides just the processing of the actual tea leaf community, there's a lot in terms of how you choose to blend the tea and what you pair it with. So there's a lot. It's, I guess it's like on some level being a bit like a chef. It's an ongoing study. You know, it's exciting. You meet interesting people. It touches on cultures. It touches on um, even the tea wear and how history developed and how they started creating different pots and accessories. Um, so it's such a rich, it's such a rich study. And as I say, so ongoing. And and way beyond what my mother ever <laughs> took part in at book club. <laughs> I, 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 I was doing a bit of, I went on to chat GPT to look at 
tea but right. I mean right. I'm going to find out from you much more but one of the things that fascinated me was that samurai warriors the, the great yes. samurai warriors in Japan the last thing right. they did before they went into battle was to have a cup right. of tea couldn't believe right. it yeah and it actually makes sense because you know Tea, besides all the incredible health benefits of tea, you know, they actually speak about the fact that tea is the most balanced beverage in the world. So it keeps your mind very mentally focused, but your body is relaxed. So I would imagine, you know, to have that sense of, of mindfulness when you're going to battle, but having a body that's agile enough to respond and be relaxed, I would imagine it would be a fabulous thing before warriors actually went to war. So it actually makes sense as much as we would think a cup of tea is always to relax and indulge, right? Um, so yeah, there are a lot of health benefits and teas. I don't know. It's just a fabulous beverage. What can I say? You say, what sort of health benefits? So, you know, it like relaxes your muscles. It actually increases, it increases your lung function on some level. They talk about bronchodilation. Um, and generally all the antioxidants in tea are just a really great detox. And, you know, I always say that um, green tea, for whatever reason, got the best punt out of all of it, had the tailwind from a marketing perspective. People always forget about black tea. Um, and what I find fascinating, and certainly as I got more and more into tea, very few people actually realize that black tea and green tea and white tea and oolong teas, all the different types of teas, actually come from the same bush. Um, so it comes from one green bush, and how we choose to oxidize and prepare that leaf is literally what ends up changing the profile of that leaf. But it starts as a green bush. A, a and bit like wine starts as a grape. Right, right. But the difference is it doesn't it, – it wouldn't change into like a white grape if it started as a red grape. Whereas if you actually look at a green bush, all we do, almost like an apple, when you take a bite of an apple and you're allowed to oxidize, just naturally come into contact with oxygen. There's no processing like – you know, one would think the word process sort of houses. It's got nothing to do with real process besides a natural oxidation process. So if you take tea, you pluck a green tea leaf, and you literally expose it to oxygen. There are different methods of doing this. Sometimes they roll the tea, they style the tea. There are lots of ways to actually introduce oxygen into that leaf, and it creates a profile that becomes what we call a black tea today. But it's actually from the same bush. So to take you back, back to those health benefits, the antioxidants and vitamins and minerals, etc., even even amino acids inside a tea leaf. But green tea somehow, in that processing, yes, if all teas were equal, in the processing, a green technically would be healthier, slightly healthier than that of a black. But a black tea leaf, it's the same bush, is just slightly oxidized and depends when it was plucked and depends how it was actually treated and prepared and etc. and which slope it sat on in which region of the world. All of that impacts, number one, the goodness and the caffeine or tannin output in that cup of tea. So it's completely fascinating and there's a lot of great stuff in tea, but people always say, you know, wow, I'm on a detox diet and I'm drinking green tea. And I always say, that's amazing, but what about a black tea? And they're all like, no, 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 I'm only into greens. Right, which I find fascinating. But but basically, there's no difference. Well, there is a difference, but they're both equally healthy. That's correct. So both of them would really, if your tea leaf is actually a decent grade of tea, so I think that's really what you're looking for. And again, where we positioned ourselves as the Tony Gloss Collection was very much in a in a bracket of premium tea. And why I say premium, we wanted it to be quality tea. I always felt that the teas in South Africa, I mean, open a regular tea bag and just look at what's inside. It's like offcuts of tea. 
And in fact, it's actually one worse than off cuts of tea because it's not even just bottom of the barrel tea. It's tea leaves that have actually been produced to be like that. They like cut the leaf up. They shred the leaf up. So a lot of the antioxidants and goodness at time of process are actually lost. So what's nice about a full leaf tea, which all our teas are only full leaf teas, number one, we only pluck teas from the very two top leaves as well as the bud, which really, it's, it's, if you look at a tea bush, it's really like a photosynthesis machine for all this flavor that gets pushed right to the top of the tea leaves. And then we pluck them, and all our teas are full leaf teas. We only use leaves that have never been shredded. We don't touch that tea in any other way. And we keep the goodness inside, okay? That's what we do. And um, tell us about some of your different teas. You've talked about black tea. You've talked about green tea. What other kind right. of teas do you do you produce? Right, so we also do white tea. So white tea is really predominantly also from the two top leaves and a bud. But the bud would be, um, you know, almost like the tea leaf that's going to unravel in the next couple of days. So it's almost like that baby leaf. And if you look, it's got little, like, Fluff on top. Why? Because a baby deserves a blanket. And it really is a tender cup of tea. It's gorgeous. And, um, and if you look at that as a white tea, that's, we certainly do white teas. We've got like peach flavors of, of, um, white teas. And it's very delicate, very, very delicate flavored teas. And then we've got oolong teas, which a lot of people aren't familiar with too much in the West, but it's basically sits between, it's like a bad way to describe it as a brown tea, but it really is an oxidation process that's um, almost retarded between green and black. So it doesn't fully oxidize, but it gives you a beautiful profile between green and black. And those are your four types of tea. And then you'll obviously get flavored components where you could put botanicals or fruits or, so let's assuming I had an apple and I added cinnamon, it would become a flavored apple, right? It wouldn't become a banana. So you always start with what base it is. So if it's a black tea and you add like cinnamon and orange peel, that'll become a black flavored tea. And so too with green. If green was what you started with, take it back to the fruit example. If it was a banana with cinnamon, it would become a flavored banana, right? So you start with green and you say it's a flavored green tea. So it might be flavored with cinnamon or orange or it could be hibiscus or berries or whatever you choose to pair it with. Um, and then there's a whole category, Kate, and this, this to me is always completely fascinating as well. Um, people don't realize that there's an entire category of tea called herbal teas. Now, to let you in on the secret here, herbal teas is a complete oxymoron. It's either a herbal or it's a tea. So tea, the history of tea is a camellia sinensis plant, which was an evergreen plant indigenous to China. It's now grown all over the world in many regions. Okay, but that plant was one clan. It was a clan of bush. And that particular plant is what we call camellia sinensis, and obviously colloquially we refer to that as tea. Anything else we prepare like tea that does not come from that bush is what we term a herbal tea. So, so in the it's not really a tea. tea. In, in. It's not a tea at all. <laughs> okay. So why, why we adopted it as the tea category, I can't tell you. But it is a clever way to educate the audience on what to do with this bush. You know, um, and I've really tried to trace back the roots to, to who actually came up with this phrase herbal tea. And I think it might have been a Gamo Seagull years ago from a brand called Celestial Seasonings in America. And I think they were packing herbs on the mountain. And I think, I don't know what herbs exactly they were packing. And one of the friends, one of his friends was John Lennon. So I'm sure they were packing some interesting herbs. Um, but whatever those herbs were, <laughs> they decided to call them herbal teas. And I think that's the origin of herbal tea, um, stand to be corrected. But we do a lot of herbals today. Um, so we do chamomile, we do peppermint, even the famous one rooibos in South Africa. 
We yeah. all love it's got incredible benefits, but Kate, it's actually not a tea, believe it or not. No, because it's it herbal. doesn't come from the camellia bush. That's exactly it, you know, and it adds beautiful. I always, um, if you actually go onto the Tony Glass website and if you had to buy any of our gifts, we've got 16 piece gift packs and we've got 80 piece gift packs. And within the 16 piece gift packs, we've got a beautiful story where I wrote a story of, of the real, um, it's basically the full history of tea, but I personified the little tea leaf and he talks about his papa green tea, his great, great, great grandfather who saved himself for a windy day. And if you read it, you, we actually talk about the herbals as the more arty side of the family <laughs> who married you know, like the black teas, you know, the green teas, et cetera, married out and, and have a more arty side of the family. <laughs> and what, those are the herbals, right? What, what, what's, what, what do you think is the best tea to drink or, or couldn't you generalize? You know what? It really depends on what mood you're in. You know, it's like saying in the world, what's the, what's your best beverage? So, yeah. I mean, for me, I absolutely love salon teas, right? Obviously yes. I'm very, I'm proud of a lot of the South African, not that we do black teas and green teas from here, but a lot of our herbals and a lot of the African teas, like Kenyan teas, are beautiful. But if I had to pick one tea that I really love to drink day and night um, is a Ceylon tea, which is from Sri Lanka. Um, you know, like a lot of people also don't realize when they turn around and say they only drink Ceylon tea, you know. But, like, what does that really mean? It's basically a black tea which is, you know, like I've just explained, and it comes from that region, Ceylon, which changed its name to Sri Lanka in 1952 or 1954, stand to be corrected. Um, and literally now we drink a black tea. with It comes from a great region, etc. But that is a beautiful all-day drinker. Stands up beautifully to milk and sugar. So if anyone wants a slightly sweetened beverage, it's fabulous. Um, and then there are all the fruity ones, you know, something like a pomegranate oolong, which we run with. Um, just gives you enough, enough flavor. So you're getting enough of the bold flavor that you would get almost in a black tea. But because it's an oolong, you get all those like nuances, a lot of delicate flavor coming through. Um, so I love a pomegranate oolong as well. Um, you and then you the talk greens, about you know? oolong. Oolong. Yes. Just explain the oolong. Right. Right. So the oolong is that, that semi-oxidized tea. So you can imagine if you were trying to Imagine preparing an apple and trying to, trying to get the apple, the apple to oxidize slightly. So you'd get it to oxidize and now you want to stop the apple going brown at a certain point. So you have to heat that tea, that tea leaf at exactly the right time to basically stop the, what we call the enzymatic browning. Now when a tea leaf actually browns, it changes both what you see with your eyes and the flavor profile that you experience in your cup. So an oolong is that semi-oxidized tea. It's not like an unoxidized, almost green tea, and it's not a fully oxidized okay. black tea. Now, again, that flavor, you're going to get enough fullness. You get like a body, which is like the weight on your tongue, like a, like a heaviness in the cup, but it doesn't give you that, you know, there's that that um, very well-known astringency to tea. It's like a dry bitterness. I mean, that yeah. sounds like a negative thing, but it gives you a beautiful flavor and feel. It's like a mouthfeel. That astringency is not as pronounced in an oolong. So for somebody who wants a flavored tea that can't handle that astringency that a black tea would give you, they might find it a bit dry or a little bit harsh, you could go for an oolong, which will still give you a beautiful body to the tea, 
a lovely fruitiness because we pair them with fruits. So, you know, something like an oolong or a peach would be, you know, a peach oolong or a pomegranate oolong would be nice. And it gives you like a fresh fruitiness as well with lots of delicate, intricate notes. Um, so I'd recommend it. It's really awesome. Uh, it's so interesting to hear all this because I do drink tea. My late husband used to say it's like camel's pee because I have it so <laughs> weak. I said, right. you've never drunk camel's pee. How would you know? But right. I'm, right. I'm not like a builder's tea drinker. One of my very good friends, English friends, she drinks what I call builder's tea, which is very, right. very strong tea with lots right. of milk and about three spoonfuls of sugar and whatever. whatever. Absolutely. But um, going back to uh, Sri Lanka and Ceylon, I was there yes. just before lockdown, in fact, and we went right. to a couple of tea plantations and there we are, very old, very old uh, plantations we went yes. to and there we are happily going along watching the whole process and we get to this room and there's a big sign over the door the withering room so we thought yes, oh my god yes. we can't go into the withering <laughs> what's going to happen to us if we go into the, the, the withering, wither away there, the withering yes. room but it's it's an intricate process isn't it the whole business of tea Absolutely. I mean, there's so much involved. You know, people in South Africa often grow up and we know a sort of a basic black tea and we know about rooibos and those are our options and maybe a lemon tea and yeah. possibly a bit of peppermint here and there. And again, there's no preference in, in which brand we choose. We just sort of go along and take whatever comes our way. And there's so much to tea and that's what I love about it is it touches on so many cultures and, and when you really get into it, it's like really where art meets science. And, um, and you know, part of that processing is certain Certainly getting the tea leaf to be, you know, the right moisture level to make it soft enough to actually roll or not roll or style it. It's almost like each region prides itself on their, you know, if we had to equate it to South Africa, it's almost like having Cape Town with their styling technique and Gauteng having their own styling technique. So everyone prides themselves on how they twist the leaves. You get like a moustache type of twist. You get little curls. You get balls. You get, you know, they call them like, you know, you get these jasmine pearls. You get little pearls, but they're just like rolled with different technique and I mean all these regions are so steeped in this history and just love the fact that they can add their value differently um, but there's a lot of science behind it absolutely Kate for sure. Um, where in South Africa I know in the Western Cape obviously rooibos do we have tea sort of property right. not rooibos tea plantations in South Africa? You know, not not like we used to have. Unfortunately, in the 60s, we've sort of let um, sort of the skills on tea farming sort of lapse a little bit in South Africa. And in fact, I'm actually trying to get some international guys on board to come and resurrect that slightly because I think there's just such an opportunity to do more in South Africa. We've got great climate, but unfortunately, our black and green teas are not great in terms of world class. If you're looking at the premium tea category, so you know we do a lot more. We do a lot more of the African tea like Kenyan teas are fabulous, Tanzanian, Malawian teas, um, beautiful astringency, great robust flavor. And then in South Africa, I try and use whatever we can locally in terms of the botanicals or anything we would put in, be it the fruits, the botanicals, the herbals. And that's what we do. So we do honeybush. You know, we do the rooibos teas, um, as I explained, herbals. But you don't only do teas, do you? 
Um, in terms of beverage as well, are you saying yes, because we also do yes. iced teas and yeah. So we basically, you know, we started 15 years ago and people were loving our flavors. You know, we created dessert teas where we had like creme brulee, which might be like a vanilla honey bush equivalent and like healthy versions of dessert teas. And so many of our consumers were, were quite excited about where we were going in tea and kept saying, but can't you do something for us in iced tea? Um, and we've always got a phrase internally where we say we far more than just lemon and peach because I mean, how much lemon and peach Peach iced tea, can we drink? <laughs> I'm not being funny, but you know, eventually that is where tea's at. So we thought, fine, let's come up with interesting flavors and let's take that same approach of quality tea um, with a beautiful finish. Everything about us is always an experience. And we thought, let's switch this on in terms of our flavor profiles into iced tea. Um, so I came up with blends like berry boabab, you know, and our whole team worked on interesting things, you know, kiwi, cucumber, and mint, lemongrass, coconut, ginger. So, you know, just creating like a polysensual flavor experience instead of sitting with lemon and peach. And sorry to anyone who drinks lemon and peach. I'm not against lemon and peach. I just think we can do more. Why not? The world's more exciting than lemon and peach. <laughs> and, and what's your website, Tony, so people can have a look at it? Right. So my website's um, www.tonyglasscollection.co.za. And that's T-O-N-I. That is That's correct. Yeah. that's correct. Tony at tonyglasscollection.co. Or www. Yeah, tonyglasscollection. Yes. Now, what what else is on the horizon for you? Don't sound like the sort of person who's just going to sit still. No, maybe it's the caffeine, maybe it's the tannins, I'm not sure. Um, but the truth is absolutely, I mean, there's, there's lots to do. And I think, you know, part of, part of my story was to actually learn about tea, bring it back to South Africa, and also try and take that to the world. Because I felt that we could actually add our mark. Once we were creating world-class teas, we could now take that back to the world as well. So so we're certainly looking at doing certain things on the export side. We've got a lot of opportunity to do some nice, exciting things. Um, we also switched on a tea experience. If you come to the Discovery Building in Santa, and we actually switched on a Tony Glass tea store. Um, oh. And the store's fabulous, you know. It's really a nice experience for anyone who wants to come. And for those who don't realize, you actually don't have to be a Discovery employee to benefit from the ground floor, which we, we based on the ground floor, or the first floor. So anyone's welcome. So please come and join, and you'll see there's lots of – we've created an entire tea menu. Oh. So everything there that you want is tea-ish. Um, more tea than ish, but um, we always say it's tea ish. And um, yeah, Kate, okay, a beautiful experience. I mean, I'm definitely coming. Yes. And final question Would your mother or does your mother approve? My mother does, but my gran, who's still a big fan of you, um, keeps saying to me, but there is tea. Why did you go into tea? You know, and even though I think she is proud on the side, I think she's more of a coffee drinker. But I must say, I have converted her and she now drinks my iced tea. So at 91, it was her birthday the other day. So it's so a happy birthday, Reva Rosen. Um, <laughs> and she still drinks, she drinks my iced tea. So I must say, I have converted her. And my mom's proud. My mom's a tea drinker, so she certainly drinks our tea. And yeah, I mean, I hope they are. Um, very, very final question. Is, is what you do with tea unique here in South Africa? 
Yeah, I actually think to be fair, it's actually unique globally. You know, we've got a certain processing methodology to what we do. And I certainly think the way we've positioned, you know, what it is we do. A lot of people have seen us as something, you know, a little bit um, out of the ordinary in terms of tea. And um, yeah, certainly we've got our beautiful sort of Afrocentric twist to what we do. And our flavor profiles are really unique and our processing. So yeah, absolutely. Here and abroad. Well, next time I have a cup of tea, I think it's going to be one of your teas. Thank you so much, Tony Glass. And that website again, Tony Glass, that's Tony, T-O-N-I, TonyGlassCollection.co.za. Cheers. This is Kate Turkington on Travels with Kate. 101.9 High FM. Time now to talk about books and I have told you on many previous occasions that I'm a crime fiction junkie and several of you have asked me what or who should they read of crime authors well as you know reading is totally subjective and reading also depends on your mood sometimes a bit like watching television or binging on television series sometimes you want to watch or read something very light and fluffy other times you want to really good serious read so these are just some of my favorite crime writers. You can't beat Agatha Christie. <laughs> Hercule Poirot, the, with his little grey cells. So many movies have been made of Agatha Christie uh, movies. She still, she is still one of the greatest crime writers of all time. Dead now, of course, for many, many years. But so many of today's top crime writers say they were influenced by Agatha Christie. And I think maybe that's where my love began. I can remember as a schoolgirl gobbling up the Agatha Christie crime novels, The Locked Room, and they, it's, everybody is practically all crime writers have based their stuff on Agatha Christie. Of course, today it's a lot more bloody and fast moving very often, but her influence has extended for decades now. A modern, contemporary, good crime author, good, I mean, I've told you this, it's very subjective, you may not agree with me, is Gillian Flynn. You remember she wrote Gone Girl. I think that was made into a television uh, series. Uh, an Irish author who's very good, Tana French. She has a series about the Dublin murder uh, squad, which follows different detectives following different crimes in Dublin. Note that nearly all the ones I'm talking about are female. I mean, female crime writers really top, well, I don't know if they top the list, but they're certainly up there with the best male uh, crime writers. Patricia Cornwell uh, is known for American author. She's known for her Kay Scarpetta uh, series. Kay Scarpetta is a forensic uh, pathologist. She solves crimes. I love those. I love Patricia Cornwell. Um, Kathy Reichs. I once met Kathy Reichs many moons ago, actually. I wasn't interviewed. I met her through a mutual friend. She's the uh, American or Canadian, she lives in Canada, author. And she has a, a forensic anthropologist called Temperance Brennan. 
that's been her books have been made into many TV series, always with the word bones in the title. If you see the word bones, you'll know it's either a book or a TV series by Kathy Rikes, and it's good stuff. It's not. It's not rubbish. Going back in time again, probably one of the top female psychological uh, authors writing psychological uh, crimes or stories, Ruth Rendell, uh, also it tremendously influential on modern uh, crime writers. Coming back to the present, Val McDermott, very... Um, uh, I've interviewed her on air a couple of times. A very formidable, I think will be the word, very formidable uh, woman, uh, Scottish, uh, and she writes the Tony Hill and Carol Jordan series, also uh, be made into TV uh, series. And then going back to America, Karen Slaughter, uh, she's American. She writes very gritty, uh, crime novels. So, so there you are. There's a bunch of, in fact, I noticed they're all female writers, but I want now just quickly to go to the Scandi Noir, the Nordic Noir, the, the crime fiction that originated in Scandinavia. And it's characterized, I suppose, by its very dark, gloomy, atmospheric style and also it focuses on social issues and of course the one you will all have heard of even if you haven't heard of his name he's dead now Stig Larsson he's the late Swedish author who wrote The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo made into a movie The Girl Who Played with Fire The Girl Who Kicked the Hornet's Nest he almost single-handedly started Scandi Noir Nordic Noir, call it what you will. And Henning Mankell, again, uh, Kurt Wallander, you must either have seen that series on TV or you've uh, read the uh, books. All the protagonists in the Scandi Noir series tend to be rather gloomy, middle-aged men with problems, but they are riveting and they're much more real life than some of the other crime novels uh, one reads. The interesting thing about Henning Mankell is he ran the theatre in Mapuche in Mozambique for many, many years uh, before he finally uh, went back to Sweden and uh, died there. Then you come to the Icelandic uh, authors with almost uh, unpronounceable names. One of the most famous, Esa Sigurdot. I've got to get this right. I actually studied old Icelandic at university, so I've got to get this right. Esa Sigurdadotir. In Iceland, most of the names will end in son or daughter. Johansson, Johan's daughter. Uh, she's known for her crime uh, novels too. So I could go on and on here. You probably have your own uh, favourite crime uh, authors too. As I say, I love crime fiction. I find it very relaxing to read. And also we have some very, very good crime authors here in South Africa. Uh, the most famous, of course, uh, being the 
guy, my mind has gone a total blank, but the, the, it'll come to me. He writes, of course, the Bernie Gristle, uh, novels, um, about the detective in Cape Town who is solving crime, who is solving crimes all the while, started many moons ago with not much success, has now become a world famous author. And of course we have our own superb crime authors here in South Africa, chief among them, probably Dion Mayer, who writes the Benny Griesel novels. Benny Griesel's detective set in Cape Town, set in the underbelly of Cape Town. And he wrote novels for many years before he finally became world famous. So Dion Mayer, if you haven't read him, go back to the early ones and watch how his character of his chief detective, Benny Griesel, uh, actually develops over the years. So there you go. Lots of good crime authors, lots for you to read. Well, that's all for this week. I'll be with you next week. Until then, lots of love, lots of life. Travel safely. Look after yourselves. And of course, look after other people too.